Hi, Tomato. How are you? I'm on fire about what we're about to talk about. How are you? I'm okay. As I was saying hello, I thought to myself, it's too bad I always cut this part out of the podcast. And then you said, I'm on fire. And I was like, oh, I guess we could leave that in. So we'll see what happens. It all depends what mood I'm in when I sit down. This is going to be a long podcast, I think. I think we're going to be here for a while. We're going to talk about 1.6, The Hockey Prince, which is the first post made on the OMG Check Please Tumblr. This was first posted on August 8th, 2013. I guess some people read Check Please because they love Biddy and think that Biddy is so cute and they just want to see Biddy win. I read Check Please because of this comic. I just want to see a large gay man have a bad time. I don't know if I can encapsulate why I read Check Please in such a succinct and beautiful way, but this comic definitely is the one that I ticked over from like, oh, that's nice, to, oh my God. It's just genuinely, it's like, this is why I'm here. It's not Biddy, it's not Biddy winning. I think Biddy is an interesting character. I've read good fix about Biddy. I've written mediocre fix about Biddy, where at least I was entertained because I thought it was interesting to examine him. And I think there's a lot of potential in him. Honestly, the thing that hooked me on this comic was Jack. It's this. It's it's this shit about Jack Zimmerman. I am a sucker for this particular story. That was the thing that kept me here. For me as well. I think Jack... And the interaction between Biddy and Jack as it develops, because they're such different characters and they're both dealing with past hinted at, but not exactly explained failures in different ways. But the way that Biddy responds to his life is not, it's interesting, it's fun, but it doesn't really hit me personally in the face the way that Jack Zimmerman just hits me in the face. When Jack's character sort of changes and shifts away from what's set up in this particular strip, that's what like signals to me that something has changed about Check Please. Because this story is just like electrifying to me. The vagaries and the nuance and all of the little tiny questions that we're going to ask in this podcast, this is something to chew on. I've revisited this strip maybe more times than any other strip in the comic. So much of what we know about Jack and so much of what we know about his character comes from this strip. And obviously as it goes on, you get a bit more, but this is pure backstory. The comic opens with the Check Please logo, a hockey stick, laid over a kind of not particularly attractive pattern to form what's essentially like the end pages of a storybook. And indeed, the whole art style of this comic is kind of storybook-esque. It's this lineless, almost cartoony art. Things are simplified and colors are bold, but there's also a sort of like washed out quality to it. Once upon a time, there was a prince. From a young age, he knew he was destined for greatness, for he knew that one day he would inherit the kingdom from his father. And on this page, we see a little boy wearing a hockey helmet. It's obviously Jack holding the hand of a figure we presume to be Bad Bob Zimmerman. We saw in the previous strip that he was on the Montreal Canadiens. In this strip, he's wearing a vaguely Canadians-looking sweater. They are walking by what appears to be four Stanley Cups. And in the background, there is a row of what looks like championship banners from inside a 
hockey rink and a giant crowd and a bunch of camera flashes. Next page. Through the framing of an open window with light shining through it, the text says, but the prince also had a secret. He was scared of failure, terrified of it. Over a picture of Jack as a child lying in bed holding a hockey stick, the text continues, so completely frightened of not being as good a king as his father that he would stay up every night braced with the fear of mediocrity. And you're in what is apparently Jack's childhood bedroom, and it's full of awards and trophies and news clippings on the wall. The next page says, And so the prince took a medicine to calm his anxiety, and he slew trolls, and he took more, and he slew dragons. But one day he took too much. And the sequence on this page has a medicine bottle, a trophy, a picture of Jack standing in front of a mirror in a bathroom with a number of pill bottles on the sink, and then the cover of something called Hockey News, it's a magazine, with a picture of Jack that says, like father, can history repeat itself? And then number one prospect. The next page is a giant tile floor spread, and there's a pill bottle opened with a bunch of pills strewn about the floor, and the detail of Jack's hand, and it says, and nearly lost everything. So the text follows from one day he took too much and nearly lost everything in the hallway of what says Tation Tur, and it obviously is shortened from Rehabilitation Center. Through a door frame in a room, Jack is sitting silhouetted in front of a window with pine trees out of it, on the bed, looking out the window with his hockey bag near the foot of the bed. The text says, so he was banished. The kingdom would not have him. He was the talk of the countryside, an embarrassment to his family and most importantly, a disappointment to the king. And then silhouetted on the wall is, I guess, a figure that's meant to be Bob Zimmerman. But the prince would concoct a plan. He would venture back to the land of the queen. There, he would reclaim greatness and thereby gain entrance to the kingdom. And all was going well, until, of course... And this text is set over a picture of a sort of wooded landscape with a lake and then what looks like a bunch of buildings in the background on the other side of the lake. It's implied that it's Samwell University where Jack is going to school. His figure is again silhouetted in the foreground, sort of looking across the lake at the start of a long winding path around the lake toward the university. Final page. This little shit came along. So the text follows from, and all was going well, until, of course, this little shit came along. And then it's a sort of, what I guess somebody would call, like, chibi version of Biddy. Just his face and his fucking mitts holding up steaming pie. He's smiling, he's blushing, and his face, hands, and pie are sit against a blue backdrop. I think online there's another page of end papers, but I'm looking at the year one Kickstarter and it just goes straight to the next comic from there, which sort of takes some of the charm out of it. And Gozi put a couple of tags on this post when she put it on her own journal. Bad Bob and the Ballad of Hockey Zuko. And then, welcome to Woobieville, Population Jack Zimmerman. I think there's something about 
the fandom associations of the word wooby that it's crossing the streams for me in a way that is delightful and also given the distancing that Ngozi and the comic has sort of made from its fandom origins potentially conspiracy theory etc cetera, etc cetera. I don't know it just fills me with feeling it's interesting to cast Jack in parallel with Zuko, especially considering the relationship that we see develop between Bad Bob and Jack. But Zuko is the prince of an imperialist nation based on Imperial Japan. He has a very awful father who's like, son, you must take over this imperial project and like use fire to rain havoc on all the nations. And Zuko isn't badass enough, so then he gets exiled. And then he goes through a three season redemption arc where he starts off as an antagonist and then eventually becomes part of the sort of avatar crew and fights back against his father and his older sister who are both pretty awful people. So it's really interesting to cast Jack as this scion of some kind of imperial figure who then gets a redemption arc. If we see Jack as this figure who eventually becomes an unmitigated love interest, it's really interesting to see him start by being compared to a character who is explicitly an antagonist to the show's protagonist. I have seen a lot of speculation from before things were much clearer, so let's say before the end of year two, that actually Bob Zimmerman is an asshole and Jack is right to be wary of him or afraid that he's not measuring up or thinking that his dad is judging him. There are a lot of fanfics that were written over sort of 2014 to 2015 that I have read that do have Bob putting maybe like a harmful or a dangerous amount of pressure on Jack or have him being difficult, or he has difficulty understanding sort of like the role he played in Jack having what happens to him in this comic happen to him. Maybe it's this sort of hockey Zuko terminology that gives people some of that impression. Because all it says in this strip is that Jack was afraid of disappointing his dad and then in extras and sort of paratextual material, Ngozi says a lot that like Jack has daddy issues. But Jack having daddy issues doesn't necessarily mean that like Bob Zimmerman has son issues. So I think there was a lot of assuming and imputing going on. Maybe it is this relationship to Zuko that Ngozi draws here that gives people some of that idea. It's a bit in the language of this particular strip and in the imagery of this particular strip, especially the one in the rehabilitation center. It's not clear who's speaking, whose perspective this is, but... Those words are right next to this kind of ominous shadow. However, we kind of end up seeing Bad Bob Zimmerman. Like he's introduced in such a way where that sense of wariness makes sense to me, even if eventually narratively it doesn't play out. For me, this style is really in conversation with 1960s imagery, like Anatomy of a Murder, as well as other children's books from the period the lack of right angles, the way the pine trees are drawn, that's very 60s for me. Even the color, actually, that sort of like muted greeny palette of the end papers is very 60s to me. There's something here in the imagery itself which feels older than the imagery in the regular strips. And I don't know whether it's just because it's talking about a character's backstory or because it's reaching into older narratives about, I don't know, masculinity, fathers and sons, sports. There's something happening in the style here that for me is reaching into the past. I do think you're on to something about it being an archaizing style, but the thing that 
comes to mind for me here are the conceptual illustrations of Mary Blair, who was a concept artist for Disney. Her sketches and illustrations created the visual look for things like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. And she has a very distinctive style where things are kind of color blocky and they're a little bit like pastel meets neon. What came to mind for me was the openings to a lot of the pre-Disney Renaissance films like Cinderella, like Sleeping Beauty, that are very storybook looking. And then you shift into a more caricature, cartoonish art in the actual film. We are talking about a prince here. I'm really interested by this characterization of Jack as a prince, particularly in comparison to this little shit portrayed first and foremost here, not as a hockey player, not as part of this like hockey legacy, but as a baker. That's a really interesting power dynamic. And I don't know exactly what to do with it, especially because we are introduced to Bad Bob in this like relatively mythologizing way in the previous strip where he's compared to Lucille Ball and Beyonce, you know, the two best women in America ever produced. And then we get to this strip where he is not only this famous hockey player, but is the king, capital K, right? And we have Jack as his hockey scion, as this future of hockey, number one prospect. And I'm like really interested in the way that this little shit punctures that image, that mythology, but also plays into it. If you want to read it like this, then what you've got is somebody who has basically titles and lands and power and resources and somebody who is effectively a servant from a different class. We talked a lot in the episode that posted today about chirping, about the idea of romance. And we didn't actually talk about what is romance. I don't mean to turn this into like a medieval literature course, but what is a romance? I mean, it's basically something that's impossible. 100% unrealistic to the point of hyper-realism because it's not going to happen. And part of the convention of a romance in like a medieval literature sense is that you have to understand that when you read the text. So a lot of these stories are predicated on this like subversion of class that would never happen in the real world. I think you can see that when you follow the tropes of romance into melodrama in the like 18th century and then further into what we would begin to understand as modern romance in the 19th century and then certainly by the 20th century. The rules of romance erase actual distinctions, which are, if not inescapable, then extremely difficult to escape in the real world in favor of emotion. And definitely by the time you get to like Harlequin romance, that's all about feeling and, you know, your pirate Viking, like the empire lord. It doesn't matter whether Vikings and vampires never coexisted because like here they are and they're in love with you. Hooray. Yeah, that pirates and vampires never coexisted implies that they never coexisted because like vampires were from two centuries earlier. <laughs> interested then in this borrowing from romance and from fairy tale 
language and imagery. Uh, because what does that imply about Jack and Biddy? Like, what does it say if they're, if, I mean, this is also interesting for me. I didn't think about this until literally right now, but if we're looking at 18th century fairy tales, which are older stories gathered by folklore scholars. So the Grimm's fairy tales all have a moral attached to them. A lot of those original tales did not. The Grimm brothers were actually like very Christian and attached new morals to some of those tales or different morals to some of those tales than they may have originally had. But the, but the impact on, on fairy tale culture is such that there is a moral typically attached to fairy tale when you're first introduced to those tales as a child. And so now I'm wondering, does this have a moral attached to it? And if so, what is the moral? Does Checkpoints have a moral attached to it? Was this actually foreshadowed the whole time? And I was a fool for thinking it was something else. If you're looking at just this one strip, it's very difficult. Okay, I think it's very obvious to say like, oh, it's a fairy tale. We're talking about like the king and the queen and the prince. Oh, it's telling a pretty gruesome story in something that we associate with a childlike paradigm for either juxtaposition or to sort of soften the blow of the hard truth. What I think is difficult to tell without looking ahead to the rest of the comic is whether or not this strip is supposed to be read straight or if it's supposed to be read as a subversion. I don't know if it's fair to put the onus on 1.6 The Hockey Prince to be a decoder ring for the entire comic. However, in some ways, this is a point at which you're forced to ask yourself, so is this strip basically like rehabilitating the horrifying event in the context of a romance? Or is it subverting the romance through the inclusion of a horrifying event. And I think it's probably completely impossible to know. My conspiracy theory as like a check please fandom edgelord who is stuck in the house with nothing else to do but think about check please is that it was originally a subversion and at a certain point the author just went fuck it. But I don't know that we can ever say this for sure. And the rest of the comic, like the next three and a half years of it, is so vague and so like herky-jerky in its weird scattershot, moralizing, undercut by fuck it, that I really don't know that it's possible to say. But I feel like maybe through having this conversation, I can kind of come to understand why you get two different audiences for the comic. You get people who are like, oh, it's a subversion, I came here to wallow in misery and basically watch, you know, large gay men collapsing on the bathroom floor. And then you also get people who are like, oh, I came here to watch two boys falling in love and one of them will be the king and one of them will be the baking king and that'll be fine. The fact that you can read Check, Please two ways at once I think the end does not bear that out. And that's part of why the end frustrates me. But until a certain point, you can do a surface level reading in which you accept that the tropes that the characters are in conversation with are being played in a straight-faced way. Romance tropes that are being gestured towards, in other words. For that surface level reading, you don't just take the text on the page. For me, in order to get that sort of surface level reading of the romance tropes, you take what's on the page as a gesture towards a whole legacy of narrative. 
And you fill in a lot of the narrative gaps with expectations that come from other pieces of media, which you're familiar with. A lot of characterization or narrative work is being done, not so much by the comic itself, but by the genres in which it's operating, which is why I think I'm so obsessed with what genre it is. But there's another way to read it where you don't necessarily allow these characters to point towards other tropes. I don't know, big guy loves small guy. Like, I don't know, that's like a very (laughs) basic trope, but you know what I mean? That is a frequent, a frequent dynamic. And often there are certain character traits associated with like the big guy and the small guy. And you, you, you know, you can see Jack and Biddy as an iteration of that trope. Uh, and you can use it to understand who they are and their motivations based on other texts that you've read that also borrow from that trope. But if you don't do that, or if you kind of see that conversation from a different angle, Jack and Biddy have a really fucking weird relationship, man. <laughs> that's all I can say. And I think that that's showcased in this particular storybook. When you look at this juxtaposition between like redeemed hockey prince or attempting to redeem himself hockey prince in the land of hockey and like little Baker, when you don't put that in conversation with these romance tropes, what do you get? You get this really weird class distinction. You get this really weird series of attributes, not only in this comic strip, but also the ones previous and the ones following. If if you don't see Jack as attached to the narrative of Haki Zuko, who is Jack? Like we know Zuko gets redeemed through his behavior because that TV show spends three years being like, look, he's learning how to be a better person. If you don't put him in conversation with Haki Zuko and you just look at Jack on the page, does he redeem himself? What does it mean to go from sort of antagonistic position to a protagonist position or to the love interest position? And if you are not seeing these characters as touching on these other romance tropes, what actually happens on the page? You know, it's like, what is a fairy tale? It's a story that people who are part of the system tell themselves about the system that they're in. The function of this kind of literature the kind of literature that Czech Please is, like basically romances, is a balm because it's telling people who are abused by a system, typically women if you're talking about romance, women and queer people if you're talking about the readership of fanfic or something like Czech Please, it's a balm for that audience. The system that they're stuck in is so incredibly crappy. The argument keeps getting made that Check Please is destroying toxic masculinity merely by existing, because in the real world, somebody like Jack would basically not come to accommodate somebody like Biddy. They would not fall in love. They would not be friends, probably. That's the thing, is like none of this in the real world would happen. That's the problem that I have with it. That's the problem that I have with a lot of like happily ever after narratives and stories about things going right. There are a lot of people for whom things never go right. Just telling stories about how everything is perfect, the end, is something that people do for themselves in order to cope with a life where things don't go perfectly and life is really hard and painful. That's the sort of moralizing aspect of, you know, Brothers Grimm fairy tales. There is this puritanical, Germanic Italian 
that will write things for the people who step outside of God's will. But of course, in the real world, that doesn't happen. The people who misbehave, if they're the people at the top, don't suffer any consequences. They just keep going. Does that mean that he and Biddy are now, now that I'm thinking about this as, as sort of a hierarchy situation, does that mean that he and the baker, the prince and the baker, are they now on the same level? Is that what this indicates? No. I mean, of course they're not, but is that what this is suggesting? No, I really hope not. The fact that Jack Jack's father is the king and he has four trophies, like the fact that he could just go to college and be fine. Like, I mean, we don't know anything in the, at this point in this strip. We do not know anything about Biddy except that he was a marginally successful, like, junior figure skater three years ago. We're talking about somebody who is being framed in the context of, like, aristocracy, a landowner. I'm fascinated by the power dynamics in their interpersonal relationship, which, like, we can continue to talk about as it unfolds. When we think about power dynamics in these characters, that's a really meaningful distinction to have been at the top of the hockey world. To go through all of those experiences and to have been so independent for a certain value of independence, and then to go to college and then to meet an 18-year-old who's never lived without his parents until now, still learning. It's just really interesting for the comic to skip over it and not engage with it. How would the comic engage with that? Well, I think that their power dynamics do get explored a little bit in the first two and a half years, you know? A little bit. Whatever power dynamic investigation there was going to be basically dissolved around the time the first half of year three wound down. To the point about the context for Jack's timeline and how it's not really in the narrative, I mean, I do feel like more details about Jack's life probably would have interrupted this particular strip, which, just to be clear, is really well done. This is actually like a really stylistically interesting and creative approach to this sort of storytelling. Obviously, fairy tales are like tropes, so I'm not saying that like genius and gozi invented romance or whatever. But I am saying few strips into this comic, she broke away from something she was only just settling into. She got really confident and experimental, like, pretty quickly. That's really good. That's really impressive. I don't know where more background about Jack's life would fit into the actual text. He does, in some extras posts and some tweets that are still kind of floating around out there, actually go into Jack's timeline. If he had made different plotting choices, we could have had a really interesting story about these two people grappling with how to make a relationship. But that's just not the story that ends up being told for various reasons that I'm sure we'll find ourselves arguing about eventually. I like really wish there were actually more strip that kind of experimented with narrative like this. I would be curious to, to hear Ngozi talk about why she decided to do the strip in this way, whether it was just like, I want to experiment with art and therefore I'm going to tell the story in this way or whether... It was a really deliberate narrative decision. I also am not necessarily looking for complex discussion 
between the characters about their power dynamic. Like, I don't think either of these characters would have those kinds of discussions anyway. It doesn't seem to be within their characterization. So I'm not so bothered by the lack of that. What I'm kind of interested in, which begins to be explored, but then is not, is how their differing power dynamics lead to complications in their life together as a couple. We begin to see during the first half of year three, and which then gets swept under the rug. And that I think is a wasted opportunity for exploring not so much what do they think about it. I don't know that they think that much about it, but what that would look like in this relationship, that kind of power dynamic between the prince and the baker. Well, all I can say is that I feel like that's what I've been doing and that's what you've been doing with fanfic for the past, like, four years at this point. The last year and a half in comic time and, let's say, like, three and a half years or three years in real time, the endgame thesis of the comic was basically, like, they have no issues, power couple, perfect team. And I feel like a lot of what we have tried to do, both in conversations we've been having these many long years, and also sort of in our fic individually, is going back to the subversion that exists within this particular comic, that juxtaposition between the aesthetic and the message, and trying to sort of back-read that into check please by creating like a counter narrative through fanfic if that makes sense i wonder if i would be as obsessive with writing about their marriage and their the way that i personally cannot help but see it unfold i know that part of my interest in writing about that is just because like with most of the things i write fanfic about like these characters are representing something or engaging with something that i'm interested in my in my life for some reason so it's a way for me to think about those things in ways that i hope are at least somewhat related and in character but i also think there might be something about not only what happens in the comic but also the conversation that was happening around the comic the adoption of the romance narrative without the subversion that just fueled me into, you know, insane territory where I'm like, Jack lives in a guest house. Well, he had to go live in the guest house because he was bad. He kept relapsing. You can't have that around kids. They have a guest house. They might as well use it. Nobody's coming to stay. Why not put Jack there? I prefer to live in the AU where... Ted Parson is a Long John Silver spokesperson. I'm sorry, I forgot. I don't know who that character is. We're only on the hockey prince. Maybe Ted Parson is still Long John Silver. No, 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 no. I, I don't care to hear his name. Uh, I don't know if this is going to end up in the podcast. Like, truly, I don't. We've been doing this for an hour and we have like three and a half pages of outline left. But <laughs> what I do want to say is that if anybody's curious what we're talking about, Tomato Greens has written a fanfic for me where uh, Kent Parson is a spokesman for Long John Silver's, the fried fish fast food chain. I don't know why Long John Silver's would want Kent Parson to represent their brand, but read it, it's really good. Is it also an MPREG, like, three-way sex fic? Well, yeah. Who is telling the story that we're reading in this strip? And who is listening to the story? Is this information that like Biddy actually knows at this point in the narrative? Is he the audience or is he telling the reader who's the audience? Is what happens in this strip true? Is it Biddy's recounting of what happened? Is it just sort of like a media narrative? Is it from Jack's perspective? What is going on here? And before I turn it over to you, I will say 
I'm not quite sure it's possible to figure it out. Uh, I don't think this is Biddy's information. It's not told in the same way that Biddy tells stories. It's hard for me to imagine Biddy characterizing himself as a little shit. That just doesn't seem in Biddy's understanding of himself. The difference in the imagery and the difference in the framing of these images takes it out of conversation with Biddy's perspective. So I think that that's like a formal reason to suspect that it's not from Biddy's perspective. I also don't know that Biddy knows this information. He might have gotten it after talking to the other hockey bros, but I'm not sure. My instinct about who the narrator is, is Ngozi. I think it is a sort of authorial intrusion. And I think that we are the audience. I don't actually think it's two other people in the world of the strip. I think if it were, there would be a different way of telling the story. I think the fact that it's a storybook style feels as though the narrative gaze has removed itself from its attachment to Biddy and has zoomed out to think about what we the readers know and what we the readers will need to know and has thus filled in that gap. So for me, it feels like an authorial intrusion. I guess the other argument is that it's John Johnson. Um, but I don't know how uh, convincing that is. Well, I think you'd have a hard time proving that it's Johnson because there's nothing to indicate that it is. Although, fun idea. I think it would be a cool meta post. I also think there's possibly an aspect of this where maybe nobody thought about it. I think possibly this was just like a cool idea that Ngozi thought she could execute well. I think she wanted to hold back some information about Jack, potentially, or keep it vague, or maybe hadn't come up with some of the details yet. There are obvious gaps in Jack's story here. There are entire parts of, say, his time playing hockey in Quebec that are not discussed here and are only brought in later. Really hard to know if that's because that backstory hadn't been created yet or if it's being withheld purposely. There is a really interesting juxtaposition between the text and the image. If you looked at just the image, you'd probably get like 70% of the story. And if you looked at just the text, you'd maybe get like 40 or 50. Part of what makes this such a good installment is the way in which text and narrative play off each other. The page with the spilled pills on the floor and Jack's hand just off screen. The text only says, and nearly lost everything. So it's like, if you separated out the image from the text, the text wouldn't necessarily mean what it means when it's put against this particular image. I think that's really smart, but I think it plays into your theory that the authorial voice is the author in this case, because it's so intentional. I have seen some arguments that this is what Beatty finds out, like he's Googling and he learns this story. I don't know that there's any evidence about whether or not he ever learns any of this information, or at least whether or not he learns it at this point. It's possible to read the comic as if he does not know this. It's possible to read the comic as if he does. I think it would maybe change your interpretation of Biddy and of Biddy and Jack's relationship, but it wouldn't actually change like the plot of the comic. The perspectives I've heard are mostly that this is a story that's either being told to Biddy or that Biddy is finding out, but I genuinely think that like that's not true. 
I understand why you might read it that way, but I don't think that it's textually provable. That was probably the way that I read it initially. It's kind of leading that Biddy ends the previous comic talking about how he started Googling Bob Zimmerman. Naturally, if that were me, somebody who wastes many hours of my life in internet k-holes, very quickly I would go from Googling Bob Zimmerman to Googling his famous son who's been screaming his head off at me every day for weeks. But honestly, I think Biddy is pretty intellectually uncurious and maybe he would get distracted by a butterfly outside the window. (laughs) Although, you know, he doesn't feel as lacking curiosity now as he does later. So maybe this is before college drains all his intellect out of his ears. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the person who's definitely not telling this story is Jack. And in fact, Jack never really talks about himself or uh, tells any of his own story. The two instances that come to mind in 2.16, Kiss the Ice, there's a sort of floating speech bubble that says, can we please know what happened at the draft while, you know, sort of all the main cast is sitting on the roof. And we don't actually know who says that, like it's totally unclear, but there's kind of a hint that the rest of the people in the comic are conscious of the fact that like Jack has a backstory that isn't being revealed. And then of course, somebody asks Shitty what his first name is and everybody gets distracted by that and Jack doesn't fill anything in. And then in 3.7, LVA versus PVD1, Jack is talking to Biddy about a particular past relationship. And he says, after taking my break, then Samwell, and he's talking about just like, you know, why he didn't continue a relationship with somebody. That was the only time that I could think of that Jack ever personally references this part of his own past. So that sort of got me thinking about why we never hear him talk about it, why he never has a conversation with Biddy about it, or references that these are things that happened to him. I completely understand and totally buy that Jack would be the kind of person who would just prefer not to talk about it. However, in 419, it's implied that Biddy has found out a bit about it. And it's also implied back in 3.7 that Jack has been telling Biddy a bit more about his past as well. So I don't quite think it's that Jack never tells Biddy about it. I think the comic just doesn't show him talking about it. Why is this never revealed from his perspective? Is it that it would be too easy? Is it that it would be too hard to write Jack talking about something difficult? Like, why does this comic only ever talk about Jack around Jack. Jack never talks about Jack. Because it's through the framework of Biddy's narrative, and because supposedly most of these strips are framed by his blog, I can see where it wouldn't automatically naturally seem to come up. I also think from a sorial perspective, difficult conversations become less and less prevalent in the text as we go. I had always assumed that Biddy and Jack would talk about this, and it seems like they have to some extent. But as the comic continues, although there are some hard conversations, including some conversations that are going to come up relatively soon, although those things exist, I don't think that that is a pattern that maintains itself. 
When I think about something like Biddy's coming out conversation with his parents, in which this incredibly difficult thing is resolved in three drips, I think that the way that difficult things are handled changes quite a bit. If we think about it from that perspective, is it likely that Jack and Biddy would have had this conversation before they were dating? Is this the kind of thing that Jack would share with a friend? It seems like not, since his other friends don't know the story from his perspective. And then once they're dating, it seems likely that that would be when the characters would talk about this. But that was around the time that the strips started shifting in terms of the way that intimacy was engaged with and examined. I also buy that Jack just wouldn't want to talk about it as a character. Doesn't seem like someone who's particularly good at talking about things in general. But I think it's not a good writing decision personally to have something this important teased and referenced and told to the audience, but not to see its consequences ripple in a relationship. I think that that is like a a strange at best writing choice. I spent my four years as a fan of this comic anticipating this backstory. The comic set up a reveal that was coming. I don't know that I ever thought it would be coming in one huge dose where Jack monologues for several panels. I don't know if I thought it would be coming from another character. I don't know that I thought it would be doled out over little flashbacks, which seems to be like part of a strategy that was being built up. But I thought that all of these nods toward Jack's backstory and that question about what happened at the draft and that very vague conversation that happens in 3.7, I truly thought that all of this was feeding into a larger reveal. And the fact that it never happened feels like a denial of some kind of catharsis that I was waiting for. And possibly to get it like from Jack. Because Jack's story is that he's kind of clamped up and not that great at knowing his own emotions, sharing them with other people, coming to understand what it is that he's feeling and why. His ability to vocalize things that he kept to himself for a lot of the comic, either gesture towards a trope that was going to be subverted. Presented a step forward for him. And it's really disappointing that we never get that. And it really feels like being denied something that the narrative and also the paratext had kind of promised us was coming. This slightly antagonistic but secretly deep or secretly kind of thoughtful person if not subverted, if that character trope wasn't being subverted, then at least kind of explored in an interesting way. But what happens is that he settles into the sort of like hulking love interest stereotype. He just ceases to have a story at all. He wins the Stanley Cup and that's it. We don't see much else of his inner life. Whereas his inner life is important. Even though he's not the POV character, it's an important part of these first two years. In the Twitter, where we see his sort of fumbling attempts at making friends with slash maybe flirting with Biddy to strips where we see Biddy and Jack become more important to each other and when they talk about really difficult things like Jack's anxiety. The disappearance of Jack's anxiety frustrates me intensely. 
in part because I think the narrative that we end up getting about anxiety is a really troubling one. I guess we'll see if I still feel that way in a year when we're talking about these strips, but it seems like such an important thing in his character. It's in this strip, which is otherwise quite vague, but very specifically names anxiety. And it is a disservice, I think, to this really interesting character arc that she sets up to not only not have the reveal, but to have even the sort of references to that past essentially erased. Especially when I think about what coming out on national TV might be like for a gay hockey player with anxiety. Seems really interesting to me that anxiety just totally disappears from the narrative. And I think there's an argument to be made that it also disappears from Biddy's narrative. We'll touch on anxiety because like you said, it's in this strip. What we're gonna do is go panel by panel and break down what's going on in, in each of them. Let's take a break here. Okay, cool. Secret here. We have a lot of audio on this strip, so it's going to end up being two or three episodes. Next time, we'll pick up with episode 9 of Check Displeased, 1.6 The Hockey Prince, part 2. Also, we're now on Spotify. Search for Check Displeased. We go great between The Daily and this one podcast I also listen to where they're doing all of the collective works of J.R.R. Tolkien, but only six pages an episode, so it's been going on for two years and they're still only in La Florian. So it could be a lot worse than Checked as Pleased. Anyway, see you back here next episode where we'll go panel by panel through the hockey prince. Bottom Jack forever.